Höstsäsongen 2019 slog upp sina dörrar den 28 augusti. Vår första gäst anlände från Irland. Hennes namn är Emily Pine. Och på scenen på Årsta Folkets hus teater, där samtalade hon med Jessica Gedin. Och då, kära vänner, låter vi samtalet ta sin början. Hi everybody, uh, we have this fan here. We decided to share it, so whenever it gets, it gets hot up here, yeah, <laughs> heated. It can get heated up here as well. Um, so I was in the back with uh, Emily, trying not to talk about her book for an hour, which was really hard. So I'm going to be like just like a little kid now <laughs> when I can finally get to it. Um, well, notes to self turned out to be. Not actually notes to self, but notes to absolutely everybody. So how come these notes to self became a book? Because it wasn't supposed to uh, originally. No, it wasn't. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't. I, uh, I started writing this book in 2013 um, because my father uh, went into liver failure And the, the plot spoiler is that he's still alive. And uh, so I've now ruined the book. Um, and he, he was very, very, very sick. And when somebody you love is in intensive care in hospital, you know, all of your self is concentrated on trying to save them. And after he came out of intensive care, I realized that I was exhausted, but also that I had all of these emotions and really kind of difficult experiences. And the only way that I knew how to make sense of them was to write them down. And just as a way of getting it out of my head and dealing with it. But I never intended for anybody to read them. Um, they really were completely for myself. And I, I printed the, off the pages and I put them in a drawer. And my partner, um, who is much tidier than me, found them one day and started reading them. And he's a writer as well. And he said, because uh, I'm an academic, and he said, you know, um, these are a lot better than your academic writing. <laughs> he said in a really, really nice way. <laughs> and he said, you know, you should, you should do something with them. Because, and he said, there's something here. And so then I went back and I, I finished it. And then I looked at it and I thought, this, I'm quite proud of this piece of writing. And it would be a shame for me to put them back in the drawer. Yeah. So, yeah. So were you initially mad at him for going through your drawers and reading your stuff? <laughs> your <laughs> very, <laughs> very personal stuff, because these are very, very personal <laughs> essays. No, I wasn't. I was, I was really moved by him, uh, by him praising it because it had not occurred to me that this was something, a piece, a piece of writing for somebody else to read. Mm. It was just, it was, I just, I wrote like this, you know, <laughs> into, my, into my laptop and it poured out. And the, in many ways, the, the finished book is very like the first draft because so much of the emotion had been inside me for so long that I had turned it into a story already, and it was ready to come out. And he, he liked what he read, but he also knew that it was a story I needed to tell. And I think there, you know, in, the, in your life, there are always these key moments where things change. And I would not have known that that conversation was life-changing, but my life is, is very different now. Well, it is a bit different than the other essays uh, because it has this sort of stream of consciousness feel about it, this urgency in a way. But you went to this publishing company, Tramp. I went to um, this really small independent publishing company in Ireland called Tramp Press. They're just two women uh, who run it and they only publish fiction. And uh, I had done a little favor for them doing a kind of proofreading or something. And so I thought, right, I could ask them. And um, I said, you know, could you read this? And they said, well, we, do we don't publish nonfiction, Emily. I said, no, I know, I know. This is, this is why I'm asking you. I thought they would give me an honest opinion as to whether I was, it was terrible or not. And then they said, okay, fine, well, we don't publish nonfiction. I said, yeah. Um, 
and for several months went past, and I thought, God, it must be awful. And, uh, and eventually I got a, a phone call from one of the editors, from Lisa, and she said, do you want to have lunch? And over lunch, um, they said, we'd like to publish this. And I said, but you don't publish nonfiction. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, and I remember it, and again, it's one of those life-changing moments where they said, we, we want to break our own rules to publish this book. And I feel like, the book is all about breaking rules, rules that say we should only talk about things within our families, or not talk about them at all, or rules which I, I certainly grew up with and even in my 40s still kind of think are true, where you think, well, the things we're embarrassed about or afraid about, we should just keep inside, and actually, we shouldn't. <laughs> those are the things we should let out the most. And so it was about confronting those. And they said to me, um, would you write a book about you and your dad? And I thought, oh. <laughs> my dad already has enough of my headspace. Um, and so I said, well, how about I, I think about other things? And I was on the bus on the way home, because the train may be delayed today, but public transport is good. And I was on the bus, and I was on the back of my bus ticket, um, and I wrote down five more ideas, and they became the five yeah. other essays. Well, I mean, um, this book has been called Radically Honest, and uh, there are six essays here, and the subjects are alcoholism in the family, infertility, rape, anorexia, depression, menstruation, menopause, and hair. Uh, so when they gave you the go, you can write about anything you want, and you put these things down <laughs> on your little note. I did, yeah. <laughs> Weren't you initially scared? I mean, what was the feeling taking on all these subjects that are completely surrounded with silence and doing it um, like really personally? I felt that I had, in this conversation with Trump, that I had been given permission. And it seems ridiculous to say that because how could another person grant you permission? But they said, you, ha you write well, which was news to me, and, and we would like to hear more. And I thought, okay, let's go. Yeah. And, and from that moment, it was liberating. Just right. And, you know, that's part of the joke of the English title, Notes to Self. I w didn't write it. I did not think anyone <laughs> would be reading it. Um, and, and in fact, actually, about a month before the book was published, and I said to the publishers, I said, oh, I just have one change I want to make. And they said, oh, you can't, it's at the printers. And I thought, oh, it's at the printers. What happens after the, oh. <laughs> there are no, no longer <laughs> notes to sell. Yeah, notes to everyone else. Oh, and I said, mm, maybe we could publish it really quietly. <laughs> and they said, no. <laughs> and uh, so partly the answer to your question is that I didn't think about it very much. I, and this is, you know, I have a, a reputation in my family for being what's called, I don't know if it makes sense in Swedish, but gung-ho. Um, that I just, I have a really, every instinct in me said, do this. And I did not think about it further than that. I just thought, right. Because how often do you get the opportunity to sweep it away and, and say the things that are burning inside you? So were you... Uh in a way, not surprised when it just... Because, I mean, this book was not published quietly. It won Best Book of the Year, Best Newcomer of the Year. Now, it got a lot of awards and, and well, it got read by a lot of yeah. people. So were you sort of prepared, knowing that these subjects are that important? No. <laughs> I, I mean, no false modesty. I'm, I'm amazed. I'm still amazed. But... What, what I think it shows me is that everybody has a story, at least, or several, many stories, and that actually, um, why do I read books? 
it's not because I'm particularly interested necessarily in the person who wrote it. It's because I'm really interested in the story and how that story might connect to me and what emotions it makes me feel. And that's, that's what I value as a reader. And so I guess I tried to write that kind of book. And I think that's what has happened. And we were talking a little bit earlier, and we were saying that one of the things that happened was people started, would read it, and then would give it to their friends. Or mothers and daughters were giving it to each other. And uh, there was one woman I met, she'd got seven copies for her 50th birthday. And I thought I owe her at least six birthday presents. <laughs> um, but that thing of, it just became this, you know, word of mouth and yeah. physical talisman. And lots of people write to me and tell me that they've read the book and then will tell me that they a little bit of their own story. And I think that's why, because it connects to so many other stories that we all live. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I got this book, uh, I was told, you are going to cry. <laughs> maybe, to not, maybe not to all of the essays, but to many. And I did. Sorry. It's so, well, no, uh, crying Turns out can people be good. like to cry, yeah. Healing is good. Is that is what the conclusion is. Uh, but do you get this reaction often? Sure, it says it on the front of the cover. Um, do not read this book in public. It will make you cry. <laughs> um, yeah. And that was said by Anne Enright, and, uh, who's obviously um, very well-known writer, and who is not the crying type. And, uh, and I did not realize that it was my life's ambition to make Anne Enright cry, but it turns out it was. No, I, I mean, I understand why people cry at it. I mean, I sobbed yeah. writing and let's, it. Let's just state that this is not a sentimental book. It's, it's not written in that way at all. It's just, it gets to you. I think it, uh, it really does. Yeah, it does. I, <laughs> I think maybe because it's not sentimental. I think maybe because it, it allows people to make their own decisions about how to feel. And some people will, people also think, just so you know, people think it's quite funny. And, uh, and I'm like, really? Because <laughs> um, I think it's quite depressing. <laughs> um, so there's, there's different kinds of emotions in it. I do think that, I do think crying can be a kind of release and a kind of reaction to it. And maybe the book gives people permission to cry. Yeah. So let's just dive into it. Um, the first um, essay in the book, Notes on Intemperance, um, the first essay you wrote, it's about your father. And the first sentence in this essay is, by the time we find him, he has been lying in a small pool of his own shit for several hours. Could you read us a bit from that yeah. essay, please? Yeah. That opening line really sets the tone for the whole book. <laughs> Corfu General Hospital is bewildering. The foyer is crowded with patients smoking, and there is no sign of an information or registration desk. I text him to ask him where he is, but get no response. Somehow, like bloodhounds, we track him to the fifth floor. He lies weakly in the bed. It is evening now, and he says he hasn't seen a nurse or doctor since midday. He says he needs a bedpan. My sister and I have been traveling for over 24 hours, and neither of us has slept. Call the nurse, I tell him. He says he did, but nothing happened. Well, do it again. He holds the call bell in his hand and presses repeatedly. After a while, a harassed-looking nurse appears, shouting at him, at us. I feel guilty for not speaking Greek. With useless gestures, I point to the man in the bed. I try to signal that he needs a bedpan to be washed and the sheets changed. None of this makes any impression. The nurse says something else, throws up her hands and leaves. He looks at us in desperation. I ask my sister to stay with him and I go out into the corridor. I can see only other patients and their families. I go to the nurse's station but there is no one there. 
As I walk away at a loss for what to do, a woman speaks to me. When I don't respond, she asks me in English if I am all right, and I latch on, asking her if she knows where the nurses are. There are no nurses, she tells me. An older man leans over. Without your family here, you die. This will become a mantra to us during the time that we spend in Greece, trying to nurse our father back to life. Very quickly, we learn how understaffed the hospital is. There are no doctors after 2 p.m. And after 5 p.m., there is only one nurse per ward. The English-speaking local tells me that I must take care of my father. She explains gently where to buy incontinence pads and wipes and paper towels. I barely take this in, but go back into the private room my father's crisis status has secured him and explain to my sister the state of play. She looks at me in disbelief. She is standing at the head of Dad's bed and fixing his pillows. I realize that I have hardly spoken to him, though I have traveled across Europe to be here. You're alive anyway, I say. He nods. He looks very small in the bed, small and lost. I decide that this can't be the way it is. There must be someone in authority somewhere in this hospital. I go back into the corridor and ask the sympathetic woman if she will help me to find a doctor. She talks quickly with her family and then walks off down the corridor. We take a lift to another floor, but there are no doctors there. We get back in the lift and try again. We do this over and over, down and down, until we're in the basement. Eventually, we find the blood donation clinic with its attending medic. I take his hand and ask him to see my father. I tell him that I don't understand, that my father is alone in a room and there are no doctors. I tell him that we just need someone to explain it all, that what I really want is someone to tell me what to do. The jolt of adrenaline which propelled me this far has suddenly gone, and all I feel is empty. I just keep standing there, asking him to come to see my father. Extremely reluctantly, he says something to the woman at the desk and leaves the clinic. We take the lift back up to the fifth floor. He's a doctor, I say with more hope than certainty. He takes Dad's chart, looks it over, nodding, then says, your father has lost a lot of blood. He will need transfusions. You must give blood. It seems easier to agree, though I had hoped for a more thorough examination. In the weeks that follow, this will be the pattern that our time takes. Hours of waiting, followed by a struggle to attract attention, only to be told something that we already know. After years of teaching Beckett plays, I am finally living in one. Well, it, it starts off like this, like this, in this urgency, and your father is really, really ill. But then you also get to know that he is ill because he's an alcoholic, he's a raving alcoholic. Uh, and you and your sister go there to take care of him and you get these little snapshots also from your childhood. So what was it like taking care of him? It's a strange thing and anybody who has an alcoholic or any kind of addict in their family will know and I have a line in the book that says, the person who loves the addict exhausts and renews their love on a daily basis. And that's what it's like, because we were in the hospital and my sister and I, and my sister is even drier sense of humor than I do. And we would have these conversations going, I can't believe we're here. Why are we here? <laughs> he doesn't deserve us being here. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because it's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> but we would have these conversations because our whole lives, he had been a terrible parent and he had never visited either of us once in hospital or looked after us when we were ill. And we were there because we, wanted, because we loved him, because we adore him and because it was important to be there. But because we wanted to 
act out the kind of love and the kind of relationship that we actually didn't have with him. And so, you know, and, and hospitals are really strange places. You have hours of doing nothing. It's kind of sitting there watching this man dying um, and, and hanging on and hoping that that will make a difference. And then, you know, arguing with doctors. I mean, anybody who's, who's, who's done it knows what it's like. And, and it's really artificial and really intense. And then we would go back to this hotel and collapse in exhaustion and then get back up and do it the next day. And we did this over and over. Um, and then we got him back to Ireland and, you know, uh, he, and then he was living with my sister, which was no picnic either. So <laughs> it, was, it was really challenging. And there was that, that moment that I'm describing there as well is where you realize, oh, I'm the parent now. Yeah. But I mean, the essay is filled with all these feelings of desperation <coughs> and grief and worry and uh, abandonment. Uh, but it's also this feeling that I really think um, is lacking from the stories about alcoholism and codependency. And that's anger. You're pissed off. And I think that's really, it's such a relief. Uh, is this one of the feelings that we actually really don't talk about, uh, hating the person you love? Yeah, I know. And also, because if, again, you know, you can hold, again, I mean, if anybody who has gone through this knows, you hold two completely opposite emotions at the same time in your body. You love this person and you hate what they are doing. And I would try over the years to hate the illness, but it's very hard to separate the illness from the person who's standing in front of you being an asshole. Yeah. Um, and he was. <laughs> and, and is still sometimes. And <laughs> sometimes my sister and I look at each other and go, it wasn't just the alcohol, he's just an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, families, right? It's a, it's a constant act of negotiation, and I'm sure he thinks I'm an asshole a lot of the time, too. The, the, the writing of it, and I talk about this at the end of the essay, was partly because of feeling angry yeah. and not having anywhere to put that anger. And, not, and it's not socially acceptable. No, it's not to talk about it. No. But again, it's funny, the book is full of not socially acceptable emotions, and those are the things that people say to me, oh, thank God you said that, because that's how I feel. Those I are could the never say it out loud. Yeah. Again, this is what I mean. These are the things that we keep really quiet, yeah. and we should let them out. But your father, uh, who is a, a, a famous critic as yes. well in, in Ireland, uh, he's sober now. Yes, yeah. six years. Yeah, because he also wrote a piece on becoming sober. How did you react to that? So he wrote it, he writes for the main national newspaper. And he wrote a piece which was in the health supplement, which we all thought was very funny. <laughs> and <laughs> um, he had a line in it where he said that he did not regret a single day of his drinking life. And he sent it to the editor of the newspaper, and he copied me in on the email. So I was meant to read it, which is something he does all the time. Um, and I read it, and I was just filled with rage. And I phoned him, and I said, how? How could you not regret what it did to our family? My parents separated when I was five, and my parents and, and my father never spoke to my mother again. I mean, they have, in the past couple of years, started speaking again, but for 33 years, they did not speak, which is really hard when you're five. And I was so angry, and he said, oh, it never occurred to me. <sighs> okay. Maybe I had stayed too silent. Yeah. Because people aren't, and alcoholics really aren't telepathic. And now he knows. I mean, yeah. now everybody knows, now right? Knows. <laughs> but now he knows. And, you know, I was, I was just in Corfu, where he still lives, last week for his 70th birthday. 
and we have conversations now that we could never have had. Yeah. And he told me last week for the first time about how he was in a car, it was in a train crash when I was five. And that precipitated his tip into total alcoholism. And I did not know that. No. Have you forgiven him? Yes, I forgive him on a daily basis. <laughs> so was this, uh, you writing this piece, was this in a way the first time you talked about his alcoholism? Yes, um, we have lots of euphemisms in Ireland for it. He loves his drink, he's the life and soul of the party, you know, he loves a pint of Guinness. Um, and I had kind of, I suppose, put up with it for a long time, but this was the first... And it's interesting people's reaction because there are a lot of people who he would have spent a lot of time drinking with who are angry about me calling him an alcoholic. Because that means because they that are means too. they are too. Yeah. And and men who friends of his who would only meet him in pubs since he stopped drinking. And who would drink in front of him even in the early days when it was really hard for him. I mean, it's just, and who would, in one case, ordered him a drink and got the barman to come over and put it in front of him. And again, the rage I feel at that. Yeah. Uh, that, and that is the cultural problem around, uh, as well as an individual problem. And it's strange because when I was writing the book, I occasionally would I would talk about things, whether it was alcoholism or whether it was other things in my life, and I would start to s I would start to think, oh, I should talk about society, you know, and I should say something, you know, we have a problem with alcohol in Ireland, and then I thought, well, I think the story <laughs> tells it <laughs> tells all. it all, and and m my partner who who read the first draft and who edited it a lot, and um, he would say, you know, maybe don't do the party political broadcast, maybe just talk about your own life. And I think that that was the right decision because that's the truer thing. That's the thing that I really know. Yeah. I really know how it makes me feel. But uh, how did he react to it? Because he has read it, of course. Yes, well, you know, my family are very generous and have gave me permission to publish a book exposing all of the things that you're not meant to talk about. He said, and I say this in the essay, um, I sent it to him, um, I emailed it to him, and he sent back a really short email. I kind of sat there waiting, looking at my inbox. Um, and he sent back a really short response that said he thought it is brave and beautiful. And uh, yeah, it's true. Um, well, uh, I mean, it sounds a bit dark. I know this talking about these essays, but I have to repeat what you said. The, these are also, I wouldn't say they're funny, but they're, they're there's a sense of humor in all of them because sometimes life just gets too absurd. Yeah, and no. you highlight these moments very well. But the subjects are uh, really, really tough. And uh, reading them are sometimes also really tough. And one of the essays that I had, well, the hardest time uh, reading is called Something About Me. And when I talked to you uh, backstage, I asked you to read from that, and you said no. Yeah, I said no. Um, the essay Something About Me is about a period of a decade between the ages of, say, eight and 18 in my life. And I thought after writing about my father and his addiction and his body, that the really honest thing to do, and I'm even nervous talking about this now, um, the really honest thing to do would be to turn that gaze on myself and to write about my weaknesses and my things that have gone wrong for me. And I stopped eating um, properly when I was eight, nine, ten years old um, and became anorexic. And then as a teenager, 
uh, started going to, age 14, started taking drugs and drinking and going to nightclubs. And, and as a result, being in those kind of environments ended up Sorry, I don't read it. <laughs> um, becoming the victim of sexual violence. And in writing the book, it was really important to me to put all of that in it and to not hold back. And I had never told anybody, ever, that I had been raped. There's not a word that I could say. And when I wrote about it for the first time, I came downstairs and I wanted to tell my partner, who knew it, but did not know the details, and I read it out to him. And that was the only way I can't, I still find it very difficult to talk about. And the book is published a year now, and when it first came out, it seemed like quite a radical thing for someone who is, you know, a, a university professor and very successful. <laughs> to talk about having had terrible things happen to her as a teenager. And, you know, I got kicked out of three different secondary schools. I nearly left school at 15. It was only my mother's determination kind of kept me in school, which is really what saved, literally saved my life. Um, because one of the things I talk about as well is how two of my friends died of drug overdoses. <coughs> and that was a very powerful and empowering thing to write about and very difficult as well because I had to take it all out and look at it again. But in choosing the words for it, lit I got to choose what the story was. I got to decide the story and to own it and have authority over it and to put it in the book in a book that I wrote as an adult, having survived all of that. And so it felt to me to be not a story about um, trauma, but a story about resilience. And there's a big difference in that. But when the book came out, a lot of people reacted to that. And I, had to, I did a lot of interviews, and a lot of radio and TV, and they all wanted to ask me about being raped. And I felt that I was going through it over and over again. And it was no longer empowering. I was losing it. And I kept thinking, why is the burden on me again? Why do women's bodies have to carry not just the violence and the shame, but now the responsibility to talk about it? So, it is in the book, and I would not change that, and I am very proud of it. Um, but I can't talk about it anymore, and I can't read it. And, that's, and also, that's okay. That's my, deci my decision. Yeah. And I think that's a thing that we should all get to decide when we want to speak and when we want to be silent. I just have to say, I think, I mean, you should all read it. We, we won't talk anymore about it. But I just find it, because in the beginning of this essay, you write that you have a story. You have a story that you tell about your youth, where you had some crazy years. And then you change this story, and it happens in front of your eyes. And I think many of us... Uh, recognize that, that feeling of, because you sort of decide as a grown-up, you have the privilege of looking back and deciding, will my upbringing or my youth be a tragedy or a comedy or a blank page? You can tell the stories that you want to, you can change it. And uh, I think it's very, very, very brave and very moving. Won't talk about it anymore because I'm going to cry too. <laughs> um, but I also think that um, in did, did this story, was this one of the stories that you had on your little, when you went home from the publishing company, this is the story I'm going to tell? I think it said London, because I lived in London as yeah. a teenager. Yeah. Did you know then that 
this would be that you would tell it for yeah. the first time? I knew I had to. I knew I had to. Um, and, th and that's what I mean about it feeling like a liberation when I was doing it. Yeah. yeah. So let's stop there. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Um, let's talk about infertility. <coughs> <laughs> I'm sorry about that too. Yeah. It's laugh or cry, right? <laughs> yeah. We can do both at yeah. the same time. But this essay from the baby years, um, but it's a heartbreaking description of wanting a child uh, and the feeling of being let down both by the healthcare system and by your own body. Um, and, but there's this lovely sentence in this essay uh, when you think about having children or not having children. And, and uh, you're in a park, I think you're watching a mother with a child and you're watching them interact and you just write, I want that love and that's when you decide so can you tell me a bit about that essay yeah so um the for for me for us it was always a bit of a debate as to whether or not we wanted to have children and in a way the essay created a space for me to have that debate on with myself on the page and to reflect on that and we decided we did want to and um, and we spent years trying and I, I don't have children. Um, and the, the essay was a way for, it was very like writing about my dad and also myself being a teenager. It was a way of getting the story outside of myself and looking at it and having um, a more objective, although obviously totally subjective view of it, but try, trying to see what, what it was like. And I started writing the essay after it became very apparent that it wasn't going to happen. And we had made the decision not to do IVF, which was the right decision, but it was a very, very difficult decision. And I finished writing the first draft of the essay, and it was, it was really depressing. The <laughs> I, think, I think the essay just ended on the word barren or something it was just it was it was not good and I looked at it and I thought I need to write myself a happy ending because this is not good enough and and one of the things that I kept saying and it made itself its way into the book was I am done using the word failure about my body and about my life and it was because I had, really, I had really wanted to be a mother and to not be able to do that, I don't like not getting things I want. And I worked really hard and I thought, well, I deserve it. And to not be able to be a parent felt like failing. And then I realized that I was missing my life. Like I, I have a healthy, full, happy life. And because I was so lost in the, and it's natural and normal that I was lost in this very unhappy emotion, I was not able to see what I had and I was risking losing it. And um, at the same time, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I write about is that my sister, who is, you know, my best friend, and she, her, her first daughter was stillborn. And we went through that. And I just thought, I haven't lost that. I, you know, I haven't actually lost anything. I've lost the idea of something. I mean, I, I, I mourn it and I grieve for my life as a mother. But I also, I mean, I'm sitting on this stage thinking, I would not be here if that had happened. And I really, really like my life now. And I can be heartbroken and full of joy at the same time. Those things can simultaneously happen for me and, and be contained in me. And I learn to carry the grief and to embrace the joy, I hope. And that it can be, I think that 
especially having grown up in a very conservative, very Catholic society, where until last year, until January of this year, abortion was completely illegal, for example. Motherhood and womanhood are synonymous. In fact, they're in the Constitution, the National Constitution, which is not how I govern my life, right, the Constitution. <laughs> but still, yeah. women are mothers in the home, is what the Constitution says. And, you know, <laughs> and so it's hard then, it's like a script, and it's hard to imagine yourself, if you're straight and in a couple, it's hard to imagine yourself into a different script. And that's what we have had to do. Yeah. And the phrase that I use now is, this is the life that I have made. And, and that you s life isn't just something that happens to you, you make it, and I couldn't make the thing that I wanted, I couldn't make another person to hold, and I, you know, I grieve for that but I made a life instead. I made a book, I made, you know, I, I get to be a teacher, I get to be an aunt, I get to be a friend and a partner and a daughter and all of these things that I do get. Yeah. Well, you describe, there are two parts of it, but one part is like a really horrible Irish uh, thing because this, uh, the, the, that the abortion was illegal. Uh, that also affected you, even though you really, really wanted a child. And I thought that legislation was not relevant to me. Yeah. It wouldn't affect my life, which is kind of a smug, very inward-looking decision, um, because it only affected people... You, Irish women who wanted to have an abortion had to travel abroad to England or Amsterdam. And until 1992, it was illegal to even travel abroad. You could be arrested at the airport. And um, so, I, but it didn't apply to me, right? Until it did, until part of the, of the journey is that um, I did get pregnant, I had a miscarriage. It was a, a very amb ambiguous, I won't go into the details of it, but it was an ambiguous miscarriage. And as a result, legally, the hospital could not tell me that I was having a miscarriage. And so I was pregnant for another three weeks until... That's torture. It was torture for both of us. And we were, and the only answer, and they couldn't even tell us that they couldn't tell us. They just said, we can't say anything. And, and I say this in the book, it was, it was women who said that. Yeah. And I just thought, surely there's a solidarity here. Yeah. I'm a woman, tell me. But you become pregnant, and I don't think this is exclusive to Ireland. You become pregnant and you have no right, you lose rights on your body, about information about your body. I mean, it's not, it's not only uh, in Ireland that that happens, that suddenly doctors now are the experts and you know, are, see an internal landscape to your body which you have no right to access. And you, you know, I was kind of lying there going, I have a PhD, you can tell me. You know, as if having a PhD makes any <laughs> difference. But I thought, you know, I can understand complex ideas. And, and but you are just a woman. Yeah. Well, you also enter this world, well, not unfortunately, not of pregnancy, but you enter this world of infertility. And it's like you're stepping into uh, another country with another language. There's those uh, acronyms from the forums, uh, BFN. Big, big fat, negative. And the BFP, big the fat, positive, yeah. And perfect mucus. Oh, the mucus and is great. Yeah, but, but it must really have been like being abroad somewhere, meeting new people you didn't thought you would meet or talk to. <laughs> it's like the worst holiday ever. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it is. It's, it is. It is like learning another language. And you become an expert. And you start asking about progesterone levels. And, you know, and, and, you know, and actually, I, I'm, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing I've forgotten quite a lot of them. And the joy of stopping was I could just go back to ignoring my body. <laughs> and, you know, I, one of the moments that I mentioned in the book is, you know, if you're doing, if you're trying to get pregnant, you're often you're doing ovulation tests to work out when the best moment for conceiving is. And, you know, I was trying to do these ovulation tests, I'm like holding the thing in my hand, <laughs> so to speak. Um, 
and you, you have to time it. Wow, I can't believe I'm saying this on stage in front of people. <laughs> we can talk about anything here. Yeah. Um, this is a safe This is room. just us. Yeah. Um, you have to time it you, so that you haven't, you have to pee on a stick and you haven't peed for four hours before that. And so you're just trying to like schedule your entire day around when you can pee and <laughs> on sticks. And then as I say in the book, you know, when, when the stick tells you now is the good moment and you go towards your partner and go, look, the stick, and you're waving this thing you've just peed at, <laughs> at your partner. Turns out, not sexy. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> um, so, the, yeah, it's, it's full of, of fun things like that, <laughs> <laughs> that, that I really am overjoyed to not have to do anymore. And part of, it, part of the process, actually, is, is learning your own body. And there is a fascination in that, because you start to think, oh, wow, my body is amazing. It knows exactly, there's a wisdom to the body. It knows exactly what it's doing, and it's amazing that it manages to do it on this incredibly regular time cycle. And now I get to ignore that again, and it's great. <laughs> but isn't it strange that, and I mean, this is sort of what the book uh, also is about, that this, the female body that we constantly probe and judge and look at is still like the most shameful thing in the universe. And that is a shame that we share. Yeah. And the only way of changing that shame is naming it. Yeah. And I was in a, I was at a, a bookshop event in Edinburgh. And one of the things I say, and I realize this won't work for a Swedish audience because you're all cool. <laughs> but one of the things I say in the, in the book is that I always found it very hard to say the word period, right? Or to talk about menstruation. <laughs> and um, the bookshop owner said, I have an idea and we're just going to help you out with this. So we're going to say period out loud. And, and all 100 people in the room <laughs> chanted, period, right? <laughs> and don't worry, we're not going to do it tonight. We can do that. But you would be fine. You would be fine. Um, and I just thought, oh, I'm going to die of embarrassment. <laughs> and then by the end, I thought, I am never going to be embarrassed yeah. again. And it was this kind of brilliant, she, it completely worked. Like, it was this brilliant moment where I thought, this is just a word. Yeah. And we were all just, period. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was very, very funny. And um, that's what I mean. There's a difference between, when you're talking about silence, there's a great difference between privacy, which is where you decide that you're keeping something to yourself, and secrecy, which is where you are shamed or you fear the repercussions of saying it out loud. And I think there is so much secrecy and so little privacy about women's bodies. Well, I mean, when did you first understand that these unique experiences that you write about uh, actually concern us all? Was there like a moment when you knew? Uh, when it hit number one in the charts. I'm still realizing it. Um, we're getting in the airport on the way here, I went in to buy, I think, a Sudoku book. Because <laughs> that's my level at this moment. <laughs> um, and as I was walking in, uh, Ronan said, look, look, look. And there was someone there who had picked up the book from the shelf and she was looking at it and we just kind of stood there watching her. <laughs> and then she took the book and walked towards the checkout <gasps> to buy it. And that's the first time I've ever seen that. I was <laughs> like, ah! <laughs> because I've seen people pick it up, go, yeah, and put it back down again. But this, I was like, ah, oh. and Ron was like, Go after her. Tell her you wrote it. <laughs> I was like, no, I, I don't want to sign it. <laughs> no, there with my pen, just you know, pulling it out of her hands. No, um, the it's it's a constant surprise and privilege and delight to me. Um, I am taken aback by the generosity with which people read the book, because 
my fear was that I would be judged for having said these things and judged, you know, by my work colleagues or by my students um, or by, you know, people I knew. And um, in a way, I suppose I have been, but in a positive way. None of the things that I was afraid of have come to pass. Actually, people are so compassionate and will say things like, I went through that too, or I didn't go through that, but I feel for you. And that's, I realized that we read for to be connected to other people. And wow. But I guess people come to you as well to tell their stories. They How do. do you handle uh, all of these, I mean, really, really deep felt life stories from people? So I'm getting better at empathy. Uh. Yes, this is the thing. Uh, glad you mentioned it because I want to talk about ET. Yeah. yeah. So um, I, I, what I have realized from people telling me their stories, because at first I thought I had to come up with the perfect response that would make them feel better. And then I would get into these long protracted email exchanges or conversations by car by letter and I would realize that this was making things worse and then that's when I took a step back and I realized that people don't want me to respond they just want to be heard and they just want me to say I'm sorry that you went through that because I am yeah and my heart goes out to you and good luck yeah with carrying it and that's what people that's what I wanted so it seems natural that that's what other people want too. Most people don't want to publish it, <laughs> 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 which is a smart but decision. Most people want to read it. <laughs> but a lot of yeah. people want, yeah. So what about this empathy? Because you mention it in the book yeah. uh, that you don't have empathy, but this seems to be like self-diagnosed or diagnosed by... Uh, I have a PhD. I can self-diagnose. I'm a doctor, right? <laughs> so what's this about? You know, it's funny. The, I, I talk in the book about how during a work consultation with a HR consultant, she broke it to me that I don't have empathy. And I went, oh, that's what it is. <laughs> so I just thought I was a terrible person all of these years. Not sure that she's a really, really credible source. I just want to say oh, she's now great. that... Well, you know, it really it amuses me because people find it very upsetting when I say I don't have empathy. And, yeah. I, and I think... I think, and I'm not saying this is what you think, but a lot of people say, but women are good at empathy because we are trained in it. But I'm very sympathetic, very compassionate person. What empathy is, is being able to understand another person's emotion and feel it yourself. And I don't really have it in the sense that I have spent my whole life being really confused by other people's emotion. If you are crying in front of me, I probably get that you're sad. But <laughs> the, in the moments leading up to that, I have no idea why you're behaving so strangely. And <laughs> that emotional intelligence is something that I am trying really hard to learn, to pick up on cues from other people. Um, and I, because I think it's really, really valuable. And I think women are taught to do it from the cradle. Yes. And, and, for th and I think You're that it is... You're encouraged to do it. I think it is a terrible thing to do to boys to not encourage yes. them to have emotional intelligence for their own feelings. I think actually the violence being done to boys by sexism is almost worse than the violence being... I mean, it's not a hierarchy, right? But I have a nephew. I watch him... I watch him not care about gender roles. And then I watch the world tell him that pink is not allowed to be his favorite color. And that boys don't cry. And that boys don't cry. And that he loves unicorns and that's not okay. Like all of these things and that he has to be tough. And he's three and he's told that he has to be a man. And, and my, mother, my sister is an only parent. And she, he, she is frequently... He is frequently told, he's three, that he's the man of the house. 
let him be a child. <laughs> He's the child of <laughs> He's the house. He's the child. <laughs> so so the, the, the empathy thing is, I think, a tool that we should see as a skill as opposed to something we're born with. And that en would enable us all to learn it and, and, to, and to also to, to identify it properly. Because now, and, and in my work, my actual job, not my, not my pretend job as a writer, in my real job, I work with a lot of survivors of child abuse. And I realize that they don't need my empathy. They need me to listen. They need me to come up with practical help for them. They need, um, they need more understanding and less of my emotion, right? If that's what empathy is. And I think that society, sorry, we've gone into society now. Um, we have become really reliant on the idea that you see it every time refugees are represented on the news. There'll be a close up of a small child because that is the only way societies in general can realize that having understanding for refugees yeah. is and and allow them into our countries mm. and that is wrong that's broken it shouldn't be based on emotion it shouldn't be an emotional decision and so i think we actually i think empathy is not a great thing a lot of the time so i'm fine that i don't have it <laughs> um it's just that yeah. the example in the book is this uh, hnr uh, person is you you you're at some sort of assembly and you're told you should name your heroes and all the other women says their mothers uh, and then I was just like, well, then I have no empathy either. No, <laughs> I know. But do you think that uh, this, uh, this th the thing that you describe, that you have to listen really carefully for cues to understand mm. how people feel, does that apply to yourself as well? Was that one of the reasons writing this book was, I'm not going to use the word therapeutic, and I'm, I don't mean it, but was this part of the process? Yeah, that's yeah. This is where it becomes like a a, a psychoanalysis session, and um, that yeah, probably. And that, so, to make it slightly about how I wrote it as well, I wrote longhand, and for me that was a way of differentiating it from my work, which is all keyboard based. But also, I could just take a notebook and go and sit in a park or sit in a cafe and write. But I also really think, I type really fast, and I write very slowly because I forgot how over the last few years. And I think slowing it down is a way to let your subconscious come out more. You know, and there are lots of studies to show that handwriting taps into different parts of the brain. And I think that allowed me to, to write things before I realized I was thinking them. And I would write something and go, oh, that's how I feel. But I would not have, I wouldn't have said it if you'd asked me the question or whatever. And I would say, I am so angry. I was like, oh, I'm really angry, it turns out. And anger in particular, I think, is quite a powerful emotion to own. Yeah. Well, actually, I had this embarrassing question here about writing in longhand, whether it was uh, because you wanted to write slower or if you wanted to be closer actually physically closer to the text. But now I realize it was not no, an embarrassing question. That was a really good question. It's a really good question. And also there's this advantage, right, that if you cross out things that you've written longhand, the page is still full of words. Whereas if you delete them on a screen... Yeah, you've done nothing. You've done nothing. And often, actually, I would go back to... Often in this, um, the first version that I wrote was the better one. And I would try and write it better with more adjectives or imagery. Yeah. You know, later on, more distance. more distance, but that's not what you want. So actually, I think you have to write the first draft as unconsciously as possible, as free as possible. And then you make it good you, in the editing, but you should keep them separate. And the temptation is to edit and write at the same time and try and be really good. But you can't. That's very stultifying. It's like a prison. Yeah. Well, we don't have time to talk about everything that I want to talk about, but I just want to mention there's this essay in the book that um, that's about um, your job, which, uh, well, it's not as 
immediate uh, immediately emotional is talking about infertility or rape or alcoholism. No, it's but it's it seems like it's really, really dangerous because this is still your job. And writing about being an academic, a woman, working or overworking actually at the university, uh, a place where you still work. Yeah. Were you scared when you wrote that? Yes, especially when a colleague read it in draft and said, you realize this is professional suicide. <laughs> Thanks. And I said, yeah, great, let's do it. Um, <laughs> no, I, so I wanted to write, the last essay is about my life now, and there were two reasons for it um, that I really was determined to write it. The first is that I don't, I couldn't see other examples of essays by women about their jobs. And I was like, in the, you know, in the life writing section, we talk a lot about our lives and not about, but I, as you say, I'm an overworker. I spend a lot of my life at my job. In many ways, I over-identify with my job. So to understand me, you have to understand how I work. But the other thing was that I want, I really wanted to give, because it comes, the essay something about me is number five in the book, even though it's about being a teenager. So it's non-chronological. And I really wanted to put a happy ending where, guess what, I made it <laughs> um, at the end. Though I did send it to my mother, and she says, you know, for a happy ending, Emily, this is really depressing. <laughs> um, so then I rewrote the ending, and I made it more upbeat. But the, I realized that it is my happy ending, because I do love what I do. And I never intended to be a teacher. I just, I had to pay my rent somehow, so I ended up teaching and I realized I loved it and I loved the interaction with students. And so I have found myself in this career and it has given me so much, so much stability, both economic, both emotional, but also financial, which, you know, my dad ha was homeless as a child, when I was a child because of his alcoholism. So financial stability is not just, you know, something that's an, an abstract ambition. It was really important to me. And so I have these securities which have enabled me to write the book. And, and so it is, but it doesn't mean that it's not hard. We can ha be successful and still feel like we're failing or, you know, um, you know, really enjoy our jobs and still feel it's really difficult to go to work every day. And I, so I, I decided that I would write about being a workaholic and what is happening to, and it's not just me, but what is happening to the university. And when I decided to become an academic, it was because I loved ideas. And I thought that the university was this ideal place, slightly outside of, but also inside society. And now it feels like another corporation. And we are all being valued, but not in terms of our inherent value, I mean in terms of our economic value. And it's really sad. And that is the essay that I have. People come to my office and they close the door and they whisper. <laughs> and they say, I feel like that too. And then they run out the door. Like, literally, you'd think that the essay about sexual violence would be the one that people would be quietest response to. No, that is, that is the essay that people find it hardest to talk about in response, which I could not have predicted. No. And tells us something scary. Yes, first the shame of our bodies and then the shame of our minds. I know, and, and, just, and as I say, absolutely just as much for men as much as women yeah. in this scenario. You know, basically, Men are now being treated as badly as women, which is, you know... Hooray! <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> Equality! <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to end this on a, well, sort of happy note. You, you already said it twice that you uh, tried to write a happy ending to two of the essays. Uh, in fact, all of the essays do have uh, happy endings. Um, and it's not that you describe life as perfect, but it's rather that as long as we talk about it, we are able to cope. Yes. So is that your intention with these happy endings of your essays? Yeah, it is. And, and, and actually, and I say it right at the end, 
and I say, because I can't do, I can't say it now better than I wrote it in here. I say, I am afraid of being the disruptive woman and of not being disruptive enough. I am afraid, but I am doing it anyway. And that, for me, is the worth of the venture to try, to know that I may fail, and to admit to being really scared of failing, and in a way, being scared of success as well. Being scared, I realized that for a really long time, I had these really big dreams to be a writer, to be happy, but I had these really small ambitions, which was just to get to the end of the week. And I, I've got rid of, the, my ambitions now are the same size as my dreams. And, and I'm going to try. And that's all we can do. Well, Emily Pine, thank you so much for writing this wonderful book. And thank you so thank much you. for talking. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you.